This episode is brought to you by FX's The Veil, starring Elizabeth Moss. FX's The Veil is an international spy thriller that follows two women as they play a deadly game of truth and lies on the road from Istanbul to Paris and London. One woman has a secret, and the other has a mission to reveal it before thousands of lives are lost. FX's The Veil, now streaming, only on Hulu. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of New Books Network. This is Morteza Hajizadi, your host from Critical Theory Channel. And today I'm honored to have Dr. Philip Nell with us. Dr. Philip Nell is a distinguished professor of English at Kansas State University. He's a scholar of children's literature and comics. Uh, he's the author or co-author of, co-editor of 13 books and over 50 articles. And uh, today he's here to talk to us about a wonderful book he wrote in 2017, but I guess the book has been revised. Um, the book is called uh, Was the Cat in the Hat Black? The Hidden Racism of Children's Literature and the Need for Diverse Books, published by Oxford University Press in 2017. Philip, welcome to New Books Network. Thanks for having me. Can you, Philip, tell us a little about yourself? You're a professor of literature, how you became interested in literature, and how you became interested in this particular area, which is racism in children's literature. Sure, sure. Um, well, I mean, children's books are the books that we read when we are the most impressionable, and so they stand to make a much longer-lasting impression on the adults we become. So that's one reason that I'm interested in children's books. Um, because they, yeah, they have an outsized impact on the adult self, on, on what we believe, on who we see as fully human, on our sense of whose stories matter enough to be told in a book at all. Um, and I guess, personally, how did I come to be interested in, in the field and in racism in particular? The field would be because, you know, children's books are what made me a reader and ultimately the kind of, uh, quirky individual who would decide to get a PhD in English. Um, but the, the, the racism part, I think it comes very much from my own upbringing as a white American of South African parents, one of whom is you know, fairly actively racist. So I think it's, it's partly a, a response to that. Um, and yeah, it's something that as a, a white person, I have to constantly make myself aware of. Um, but I think one of the best places to make yourself aware is in children's books and in, you know, the, the beginnings of the formation of the self. And so that's why I think children's books are, are one of the best places to oppose racism and, and, and all the isms, all the different kinds of ways that people can be othered or, or oppressed. You know, we, we learn this from the culture. So start, start while you're young. Uh, and let's talk about the title of this book. <clears throat> what does it refer to? Uh, was the cat in the hat black? What does it refer to? Well, it's a, a riff on uh, Shelley Fisher Fiskin's book, Was Huck Black? In which she talks about the uh, African-American origins of Mark Twain's famous book and character, um, Huckberry Finn. Um, and her point is that, you know, in, in the U.S., at least, histories of, of literature tend to be uh, very segregated. Um, white authors influence white ones and black influences black ones, but ah, that's not really true. Everybody influences everybody, and she wants to 
desegregate that. And, and that's also true, I think, of American children's literature. And so that's why I was riffing on her title because, um, yeah, because because that's a that's a problem. Uh, so you know, as 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 a nonsense poet, you know, Sue certainly has white ancestors like Lewis Carroll or Edward Lear, um, and you know, even as as someone who, uh, in some of his work, tries to oppose stereotypes, has has ancestors who are both white and black. But um, but he's also heir to illustrators and authors who perpetuate racist stereotypes. He's he's a complicated figure, and that's really true of of anybody who's writing you know we're, we're all influenced by all kinds of all kinds of um ideas some of them are beautiful and, and and some of them toxic and that peculiar combination is where the art comes from and you have to reckon with all of it i think and so that's the book is an attempt to reckon with all of it if you will um so yeah and and uh so in this book, how does children's literature conceal its own racialized origin? And in this particular case, you talk about blackface, caricature, and also the, the racial complexity of the cat. Yeah, I mean, you know, starting in childhood, we absorb racist images and ideas without our knowledge and without our consent. And that is also true of the people who make the books. Um, I don't think Dr. Seuss is intentionally recycling racist caricature in his books but he is, um, you know, quite explicitly in some books where he has, uh, for example, in the, If I Ran the Zoo, the main character goes to the African island of Yurka and he draws these really racist caricatures of, of African people. Um, in the same book, the character, the main character in search of animals for his zoo goes to the mountains of Zamba Matant with helpers who all wear their eyes in a slant and he draws these slant-eyed uh, human characters as well. But, um, you know, he also does work that's sort of anti-racist, uh, or aspires to be. Books like Horton Hears a Who, where size is an arbitrary marker of dis difference. You know, a person's a person no matter how small. Or this Nietzsche's, which was inspired by his opposition to anti-Semitism. The cat is somewhere in between. He's not overtly racist caricature, but nor could we sort of say he's with the anti-racist strain in Seuss. He is inspired by, among other things, blackface minstrelsy, which is not strange. There's a lot of characters in popular culture who are inspired by blackface minstrelsy, the Scarecrow in The Wizard of Oz, uh, Bugs Bunny, uh, Mickey Mouse. Uh, it, it was a very popular form of entertainment, and it shows up all over the place. Sometimes in more coded ways, like the, the, the white gloves, um, of, of Mickey Mouse, or, or, or the Cat in the Hat, or a Pugs Bunny, um, or the ridiculous headgear of, of uh, the Cat in the Hat, but it's there. Um, and so what's, what's and, but the cat then is also inspired by a crazy cat, the creation of the uh, African-American cartoonist George Harriman, who himself is a fascinating subject because he spent most of his life passing as a white man. Um, but some of his thoughts on race do emerge in the cartoons. Uh, and then by uh, also the cat is also inspired by an actual person, uh, an African American elevator operator named Annie Williams, who Seuss would see uh, when he went on the elevator up to visit William Spaulding at um, Houghton Mifflin. And William Spaulding was the editor who invited him to write a book to help children learn to read, and that book was The Cat in the Hat. So the cat is racially complicated. And that's why the title of the book is a question. Um, I don't know 
<laughs> and what would it mean to assign a racial category to this cat? Uh, so, so it's it is it is genuinely a question. I, I think we need to think about how popular culture recycles racial stereotypes. And I think there's a way in which, and I should have said this in the, in the book itself, but there's a way in which these sort of more subtle versions of caricature prepare us to accept uh, more overt versions of it. But then at the same time, is the cat in the hat black? And, and what would it mean to call him black? You know, what does it mean that he has this sort of array of influences from an actual human woman to a stereotype? Um, it's, it's, racism is more complicated than I think most people are willing to consider. So that's also why that's the title of the book. Uh, more recently, there has been a lot of discussion about this cancer culture. I, I think, I, if I'm not mistaken, I think a couple of years ago, I read somewhere, I live in Australia, and I read that there was this teacher who was reading Huckleberry in, in high school in New Zealand, and um, she came over the N-word, she read the word, but of course, she was just reading a part of the novel, and the student complained again about her. She was given a harsh warning or something like that. So some people go to some kind of an extreme, you know, to cancel all these books, even Mark Twain, who, of course, was against slavery. So my question is, do you agree with canceling classic books mainly that depict racist stereotypes, but from a sympathetic point of view, I mean, sympathetic in terms of being anti-racist? Well, I, I don't think that uh, The Adventures of Huckleberry Finn is anti-racist. I think it's taught that way. It was certainly taught to me that way. I remember learning that about the book when I was growing up, but... Uh, you know, it's about Huck's crisis of conscience, uh, and uh, you know he's certainly depicted as less racist than his pap. I think that's fair to say. But there's also the character the, of Uncle Silas, who owns human beings, who's presented quite kindly. And for the last third of the book, Jim is just a plaything. It's a big joke, you know. Um, and it, if if there's any anti-slavery sentiment in it in the first two thirds of it, that's completely undercut in that last third of it. And also, I mean. The book was written a generation after the end of slavery, so I don't really think it's all that <laughs> radical to make the suggestion that black people are human, and it is a mere suggestion. You know, the the, the liberal use of the N word in Huckleberry Finn uh, over over uh, two hundred times. That's not there to call attention to why that's not a good word to use. That's not there in the way that it is in County Collins' poem Incident. Um, that's just a noun, um, and Twain doesn't really undercut that, and and that that has always been uh, a very toxic and and hurtful word to use. It was in 1884 when the book was published. You know, it was in um, the uh, pre-abolition period, pre-Civil War period when the book takes place. Um, you know, Harriet Beecher Stowe's novel Uncle Tom's Cabin from 1852, uh, a racist character uses the N-word, and an anti-racist character punches him for it. You know, it's like literally a fighting word. So I, I don't think the book is anti-racist. I think a lot of us are taught that. Um, Jonathan Rack has a whole book on this subject, which, which I would recommend, but it's not. And then as, as for canceling, I don't see any evidence that it's been canceled. I mean, you can still get it, you can still read it, it's still out there. So I'm, I'm not, 
I, I don't, I don't, I don't actually see it as canceled at all because it's available, and because it's really hard to cancel a dominant culture. You know, uh, a minoritized culture much easier to cancel, right? Uh, uh, you know, the, about half of the three hundred indigenous languages that were once spoken in the United States are now speaking today. Those are th- those are gone, right? Because colonization and genocide and forced assimilation, pretty good at canceling culture. Uh, really remarkably effective. Uh, but I, I, I don't see any evidence of that kind of um, erasure happening with Mark Twain or, or, or Dr. Seuss. Um, there are certainly people raising questions about them, as they should, but the books are still out there. So, um, yeah, I mean... Yeah. There might be like incidents, uh, let's say separate incidents, but the media kind of, you know, blows it out of proportion and Speak well, about and, 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 the, and the people, at least in the states, who kind of perpetuate this myth of, of cancel culture, yeah, are the well, they're the very people who are right now <laughs> removing multicultural children's books and books that address racism and it's on and you know in an honest way from schools. So they they are actually canceling culture, um, uh, or they're trying to. Um, so it's so like as a term, it doesn't. As as a term, it's 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 a lie. Um, I mean, it is possible to cancel a culture, but that's not the way it's being used. Um, but but it, but I mean, if if the question is sort of more about like what do we do with these books? Ah, well, no, that's a really good question, right? Um, because uh, they are important, um, and you know uh, we, we have to do something with them. Um, uh, and I, I think one thing you can do with them is to read them critically. You know, another thing you can do with them is to stop reading them. Uh, also read them in context you know you can read against them there's a lot of things you can do with with problematic or or racist or sexist children's books um and none of those are you know setting them on fire right (laughs) because even if you decide not to read it or decide not to publish it right yeah i mean come on like the seuss books that they stopped publishing a few years ago they're still around you know huck finn's still around (laughs) still there (laughs) not going anywhere and the question of how to engage with these books, I really love this part of your book, and I'm going to quote from that section. It would be great if you could talk about it. So it's about how uh, teachers or children should engage with this, uh, should engage with these texts effectively. And you talk about submerged anger and express anger. So I'll just read that quote, uh, which is on page 140, 104. Uh, a critical examination of these books while readers are still children, might prevent youthful affection from curdling into adult nostalgia. Grown-ups' affective relationship with uh, the works of their childhood often clouds their perception. Yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, as, as Walter Benjamin once observed, children's culture evokes what is both cherished and lost, and that combination can make us reactionary. You know, when, when you point out racism in a beloved childhood book or, or movie or game, you know, an adult can feel personally attacked. And, and I get that, right? Because children's books and, and, and toys and culture are signposts not just to our childhoods, but to, this, to the formation of ourself, you know, to, to who we actually are. And so when somebody attacks that, it, it can really feel like you're being attacked. It can feel like kind of violation because the, something that you love, something that you cherish is being attacked, and so by implication, so are you. So I see why people feel that way. Um, you know, and that's, and that's why I think it would be really helpful to raise these questions earlier, 
with children uh, when their emotional relationships are still in the process of forming. You know, they're still open-ended. Um, I mean, we all should develop more complicated relationships with these books, but I think it's easier to develop those complicated relationships when you're young. I think it's understandable that adults are going to find this harder. Um, but I would still encourage adults to develop more complicated relationships too, because, you know, we brought up Twain earlier. You know, a, a book can both be brilliant and toxic. You know, it can both be a work of genius and racist. Those aren't mutually exclusive categories. Um, I think people like to imagine they are, but they're not. And that's okay. It's okay to acknowledge that. And it's okay to find things to admire uh, in Twain, uh, as well as things to criticize. You know, it's in, in, and likewise for, for all of these works. They are art. Art is complicated. Art can also hurt. Art can also damage. And we should acknowledge that too. Uh, so it's not, it's, it's not that one needs to cancel. You know, it's, it's that one needs to be willing to be reflective um, about what we are consuming now, and what we have consumed in the past, and to think about how maybe what we once loved may be harming others and may have always been harming others, but we just weren't aware of it. Um, you know, like if, if, you're the, if you're the white person uh, reflecting on this as an adult, do you know how your, your black or brown classmates felt when you were a kid? What do they think, right? Did you even have any? You know, in America, it's a pretty segregated place. You may not have even had any uh, classmates of color. So, you, you know, you may not have that, that context. So, so I, you know, which isn't to say throw the book away. You know, it's to say think about what, what you do with it. Think about how you use it. Think about the questions you raise uh, when you teach it or decide not to teach it. Uh, let's talk about another aspect of racism in these books, which is erasure. And you you talk about uh, a, a William Joyce's fantastic flying books of Mr. Morris Lesmore. So how it's a, it's the erasure of black actor from places that are uh, let's say usually associated with them. So how is it is it an, is it a form of racism or is it a strategy to fight anti-racism? Well, I think it's a an example of what. Um... Eduardo Bonilla Silva calls colorblind racism. It's uh, pretending that race doesn't exist. You know, it's a, it, there's a kind of perverse use of this uh, famous line from Dr. Martin Luther King. You know, I hope that one day my children will be judged not by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character, which is, which is a wonderful line. You know, it's a poetic line and it gets misinterpreted as an injunction to not see race. It gets interpreted as uh, a, a, a really kind of a, a mandate to encourage this in, in students um, and, and to even even espouse this as a belief. Um, but if you don't see race, <laughs> well, first of all, people do see race. That's just nonsense. You know, from the age of as early as two, children recognize racial differences and, and what power it grants them if they're white or, or what it takes away if they're not. Um, and then second of all, um, you know, if you're going to talk about racism, which is a thing, which is exists, you kind of have to talk about race. And so I think pretending that race doesn't exist is, doesn't, doesn't help, doesn't equip us to fight racism. And, and for Joyce's books, uh, he tends to erase characters of color or if they're there, you know, they're, they are, they're either rare 
or sort of slightly exotic, or you know, function in, as as villains. And the erasure uh, is is damaging too. I mean, I think one of the one of the biggest harms you can do to to somebody is to ignore them. You know, and and that's what this does. This says you you aren't worthy of representation. You aren't worthy of story. You don't belong here. And it doesn't do it by putting that in print. It does that by omission. You open the book and there's nobody in there who even resembles you or anybody you know. Um, and that really hurts. But again, or or I guess I should also say, it, it hurts as an accretion of examples. And Joyce is just one example, right? Uh, there's There are many, many books that do this. Uh, and, and I should also say that I don't think he's doing it intentionally. Like, I don't think... William Joyce himself has any ill intent in these books towards uh, towards black people or or, or or anyone. I really don't. Um, I don't think he's aware of it. I don't think the he's aware of the ways in which his own imagination is steeped in a popular culture that perpetuates racist ideas. Um, I, just, I don't think he's aware of it. And and how could he be in some way? Because. You know, it's like if you've only ever seen a polluted ocean, that's what an ocean looks like, right? You know, that is the ocean. It's not a polluted ocean. It's an ocean. And so, you know, I, I think it's a matter of becoming aware. I just don't think he's aware. But again, I, I, I don't think it's out of malice on his part. I, I really don't. I think the books may have that effect on readers, but I don't think they have it out of some... Um, malicious intent on William Joyce's part. And that, I think, is as often as not the case um, in, in the way that racism gets gets perpetuated. It's, it's not that somebody, it's not that Dr. Seuss sort of signs up and says, well, yes, you know, I've always loved the Klan. No, he really didn't. He really didn't at all. Um, but that doesn't mean that he was fully conscious of how his own imagination was steeped in white supremacist imagery. So... And you you talk about this uh, restorative nostalgia and reflective nostalgia in, in relation to Joyce's aesthetic project. Can you tell us what these two are? Yeah, absolutely. And, and it's a really helpful way of thinking about how Joyce is a bit complicated. So they come from um, Svetlana Boim, who is, or was, she passed away a few years ago, one of the preeminent scholars of nostalgia. But restorative nostalgia is the... Ah, it's kind of the fascist version of nostalgia, right? It's this this longing for this unified, uncomplicated past, an enchanted to 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 quote her, an enchanted world with clear borders and values. Um, however, as, as she she warns us, only false memories can be totally recalled. That's another quote from her. But I mean, this is the you know make America great again. This is make childhood innocent again. You know, <laughs> this is this kind of uh, longing for this unified and coherent safe fiction whereas reflective nostalgia acknowledges imperfection and ambivalence and pain and complexity all the things that restorative nostalgia wants you not to think about according to one um and you know for for joyce's own work visually it is actually quite reflective you see like you see ruins you see the um effects of time and of history visually but in terms of its its story white main character all the books in the library that this main character uh comes to be the the chief librarian of all white all the patrons are white um lots and lots of white um and so 
the the vision of this sort of idyllic library that he creates is very much a restorative vision. But again, I don't think I, I don't think uh, because he's consciously aware of, of of doing that, and I think that's maybe why you see in this kind of a mixture of of kinds of uh, of kinds of nostalgia there too. Uh, and there's lots of ways of thinking about nostalgia. I've been thinking a lot more about it since um, since writing this book. I mean, there's anti-colonialist nostalgia. Nostalgia can be radical, you know. Um, Oh, there's a scholar of Afro nostalgia who talks about certain kinds of nostalgia can be can be restorative and healing. So, so it's pretty complicated uh, as as an idea, um, and it's not the, the the useful part of Boehm, and she's very useful, is to remind us that it can point in different directions and can have different ends, and so it's not necessarily uh, bad or good, if you will. It can do lots of different kinds of of work. Um, um, but it's really important because nostalgia tends to be, it it tends to direct towards um, childhood, uh, and so that's why it's really important to think about to think about um, uh, nostalgia in the context of children's literature. The the inventor of the term, a, uh, a Swiss uh, medical student named Johannes Hofer. Uh, you know, it was a diagnosis for for soldiers uh, who were suffering this this melancholic longing, and uh, what they thought the the what he thought the solution to that would be would be to send them home. You know, send them home. They miss home. It was a longing for home. But what they discovered is when they sent them there, it didn't really work because it wasn't a longing for place. It was a longing for time. It was a longing to go back to youth, and so that's why nostalgia is so important when we think about children's literature. Because it, for adults, exists in that half-remembered past of our youths. So, yeah. Uh, you, there is another aspect of racism that you discuss, but it doesn't come from authors. It comes from the publishing industry, and that is the white whitewashing of literature. So, what what is whitewashing? Uh, how does whitewashing work in publishing industry and? Uh, what are, what are some examples and what are the consequences of this marketing ploy? Well, I think as a marketing ploy, it's on the decline, or I'm hopeful that it is. And uh, if people have evidence to the contrary, you should email me and tell me, and I will revise this opinion. But it, it is a practice that has been common, which is you put a white face on the book, which has a... Uh, non-white protagonist or maybe you show the protagonist on the cover but from the back or make the race of the protagonist ambiguous even though it's not at all ambiguous in the book and the argument that uh, marketers make is that and it's you know a pretty racist argument that their audience are basically white kids and white people and they're going to buy the books with the white covers and then uh, you know black children don't read as much or, or, or next children don't read as much you know Native American children don't read as much, etc. Um, and that's not true. Um, but uh, that that is that is kind of the marketing argument. You know, we want this to appeal to the widest audience, and so we're going to make these characters uh, white. Um, I mean, it's not even demographically true. In the United States, over half of school-aged children are non-white. So, like, that's it's it's wrong in many ways. But that has been an argument 
uh, used for for making these kind of covers. And some authors have pushed back and called attention to it, which was the case at the time I was writing the book. So that's why I put it in there. Uh, how about genre? You call genre the new Jim Crow as a post-racial way of regulating literary experiences of color people, people of color. What do you mean by that? Well, because people, when people talk about Jim Crow America, they think about segregation as something that, you know, separates the races completely. You know, whites use a white bathroom and blacks use a black bathroom, uh, you know, whites only signs. But actually, it's more complicated than that. It's really about regulating space. So like a black nanny would be allowed in the white train compartment if she were taking care of the white child, of, the, of let's say the mother in that train compartment. So it's actually not uh, completely putting, you know, only you can go here and only this group can go there. It's actually kind of about dividing up space in a way that that uh, uh, regulates where you can and cannot be, but in, in a way that, that overlaps. But so in the publishing industry, you know, there's a lot more realism, um, historical fiction, autobiography, verse autobiography about the experiences of people of color than there is fantasy or mystery or science fiction or dystopian fiction. Um, and so that's what I mean by it's a way of regulating that. And, and there's uh, regulating the experiences of, of literary experiences of people of color is that there are just fewer examples of diverse genres that they can publish in. And, and there are certainly examples, you know, of, of authors who have had this experience where they will write a fantasy book and be, to, and be, be told, you know, because they're a black author, well, we already have one author of black fantasy. We don't need another one. You know, we, or, or, or maybe even Asian fantasy, we don't need another one. Um, or you just that won't sell. You know, that's not, that's not the kind of book that's published. Now, that's been improving lately. You know, there are more examples of that in the last, I want to say, five years. And so that's fantastic. You know, there's, uh, there's people like um, uh, Tracy Dion's uh, uh, Legendborn. There is uh, Donnell Clayton's uh, The Marvelers. Um, you know, there's uh, Kwame Mbalia. Uh, there's a lot. There's a lot more in the last five years, and there's been, there has been in fantasy before that too, but there has been uh, an increased awareness to this gap, and we are we are starting to see more. For example, you know, fantasy written by. Um, members of, of historically marginalized groups and representing those groups in positive ways too. And is it a, I know that you don't, you're not a media scholar, so I'm just asking on top of my head, is it something that you've seen in movies as well? Because more recently movies, in fantasy movies, you have more black characters. Yeah, exactly. And I think those are the exceptions that prove the rule. You know, there have been and in fact, that you would even phrase the question that way. Recently, there have been. That's true. Recently, there's Black Panther uh, and Wakanda Forever and Everything Everywhere All at Once. Or, or even the film adaptation of A Wrinkle in Time had a, a, a racially diverse cast that was not present in the um, original novel. Uh, and that's, go that's going against a long historical trend. And so, so I think it is common in movies. And I think... The, the question itself reminds us of how common it is in movies that recently there's been some difference. So, 
Yeah. Or I mean the the, the Ms. Marvel, right? Um, uh, the the adaptation, the series uh, on uh, on Disney Plus. Um, you know, that's the first Muslim superhero starring in a series, like period, uh, as, as far as I know, at, at least of that kind of level of, of visibility and um, uh, capitalization and, you know, market saturation. Um, and it was really good, too. It was quite different than the comics, the, the, Ms. Mar- the Kamala Khan, Ms. Marvel, um, the, the series, but it was really well done. I, 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 I recommend it. And uh, and again, you know, there are some again racist people who always uh, back have this backlash against even these movies, and the argument is that it's a misinterpretation or alteration of our myths or our histories. But again, it's a lousy excuse. For example, I'm talking about the Black Mermaid, for example, or right. Cinderella, right. <laughs> the, the well, angel. I mean, they're fictional characters, yeah. so. There's no history. Well, what's the problem, right? <laughs> and, and and characters and myths can be anybody you want them to. That's kind of the point, uh, that you can imagine an alternate reality, and you can imagine that alternate reality in ways that reflect your beliefs and in ways that in, uh, that help us imagine new ways of, of living, of being in the world, of interacting with one another. That's what's mm-hmm. so... I mean, that's the liberatory potential of exactly, fantasy and yeah. science fiction, right? Not that that liberatory potential is always reached. It is often not reached, but that is the potential of it. Like, let's imagine a different way of, of living together. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, exactly. I yeah. remember there was this play, again, I came across that on Twitter. There was this play based on Jean d'Arc, if I'm pronouncing the name correctly, the French. Uh, um, anyway, so... John Dark's character, instead of being a woman, she was a transgender person or a non-binary person, I guess, playing that role. And again, there were a lot of racist people saying, oh, it's a, again, misinterpretation of history or anything. But this is theater. That's the place of imagination, right? Re- reimagining things. Uh, I've seen like a lot of different versions of, for example, Macbeth, Macbeth in a modern, a modern New York. It's, it is literature, right? It just, as you tell, you said, it's, it's just trying to show what are the uh, liberatory potentials of, of plays in a different time. Yeah, and I mean, you know, Shakespeare is a, is a great example because it you know, he gets uh, his work gets adapted in, in many different ways, in many different time settings, you know. Uh, and, and the plays themselves will include things like cross-dressing. Um, and the plays themselves, when they were performed, had men playing women's roles, you know, right? So... So yeah, theater is very much a place for adaptation and experimentation, and it, it has a long history of 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 doing that, and that's why it's fun. Um, but that's why it's fun for maybe for you or for me. You know, I think the people who find this upsetting have a different notion of well, not just of fun, but of power. Um, I think that the, the notion of power. For them is, you know, art should not raise questions. Um, performance just should not raise questions. Uh, the established order is dependent upon our obedience to particular authorities, and we'll decide who those are. Uh, it's a way of thinking, and it's an authoritarian way of thinking. But I think that particular style of thought is what makes it difficult to challenge people who, who espouse those views. I mean, we have to challenge them, but I don't think it, it makes it hard to convince them, I guess I should say, because 
like my notion is, yeah, everybody should raise questions and that's healthy and we should debate ideas and maybe we don't all agree, but you know, how can we all live together despite the fact that some of us have different beliefs and, oh, you know, I'm, I'm glad that you, you raise these sorts of questions. But for someone of, of that mindset, that's dangerous. That's fundamentally dangerous. Um, now, it's not fundamentally dangerous, but it's hard to convince someone who has that kind of authoritarian mindset otherwise. And so that's the, that's the challenge, I think. I, I, don't know how, I don't know how to convince enough of those people. I mean, I'm going to make an attempt, but I think that's the challenge. Uh, you, the last part of your book, there is this afterward, why adults refuse to admit racist content and how the children's books, uh, in the children's books they love. So I guess this is an important part of the book that I know you'd love to talk about more. Can you talk about this part and tell us what are some of the ways that we can diversify children's literature? Yeah, so the paperback, which if people are looking for a copy, get the paperback. It has an extra afterward to it. Um, and it's cheaper. Uh, but yeah, for the, for the paperback, I decided that I would read my hate mail because people had given me all this data. Uh, and I thought, well, I, sh I should use the data. Um, and by hate mail, I mean both actual emails I received. I mean, you know, comments on, on Twitter. I mean, direct messages across Facebook from people I don't know. And then I mean also comments on media articles where, where I'm quoted or the book is profiled. Um, and, you know, I thought, well, this is a really, this is a really useful bit of information that these people have been generous enough to deliver. And so uh, what are, what are some of the patterns that we see here? And, and I'm, I'm drawing inspiration from the uh, scholar Gloria Wecker, who did this uh, with, uh, oh, an exhibit uh, uh, featuring the, and that was critical of the character Zwarte Piet or Black Pete, who is the racist caricature who's an assistant to Santa Claus in, uh, in Dutch culture. But anyway, I thought, well, that's a really good idea. And unlike her, you know, she's a, um, an uh, Afro-Surinamese uh, woman. Um, I am not. Uh, and, and so, you know, for, for her, reading all that, she said, was like taking an undiluted dose of poison. And for me, reading all this wasn't because you, you, there is no N-word for white people. Like there's, there's nothing historically or culturally in the language that you can say that would hurt me in that way. It's just the, the whole system is structured to keep me safe. And so I thought, well, you know what? Then that's the reason I should look at this. But long story short, um, what really interested me about that um, was why people resisted analysis and uh, you know I think I think I think a lot of it has to do with nostalgia and a lot of it has to do with a sense of feeling threatened um, because a lot of these responses were, were deeply emotional you know they were angry and they don't know me right <laughs> I mean I haven't wronged them in any way but they're super angry so why are they so angry and I think it, it comes back to that feeling personally hurt that something they love might cause harm because then that makes them feel guilty um, and I think that is why there are laws being passed right now in the United States see Florida see Oklahoma uh, and see many other states you know that are forbidding the teaching of history in any ways that might make 
students read here. White students, uncomfortable. People don't like to be made uncomfortable. And the, the conservatives understand that because uh, if you feel discomfort and you realize there's injustice, well, if do something, don't you? And they recognize that when people, you know, when young children recognize injustice, they want to do something. Uh, but anyway, um, um, that, that's the first half of the question, and this is probably too long. So if anybody is still listening to this podcast, I apologize for being so loquacious. I hope you have brewed yourself a nice cup of tea or coffee to get through these long answers. But but the second half is, um, you know, uh, the afterward to the, to the um, or, or the conclusion to the original book, which is a manifesto of, you know, what we should do, because I didn't want to end a book which diagnoses a problem and just say, well, there's a problem. Um, I wanted to end the book and, and point in different ways that people could, could help. And there's a lot of advice in that. But I mean, I think, you know, read the books, buy the books, give them as gifts. Um, if you're a teacher, assign the books. And everyone needs to read diverse children's books, not just members of those groups. Members of those groups need them because they need to feel that they deserve books, that they are important, that their experiences, that their lives have meaning, that they matter, that they have potential. But everyone needs to read them because, you know, white kids shouldn't grow up thinking they're the center of the universe. That's dangerous. That's just dangerous, you know? So everyone needs them. Um, and yeah, so every, everyone needs to to read them. And adults too. Adults too. But certainly, certainly children. And, you know, just as, as an example, as a teacher, something that I do and something that I learn from the scholar and, and a friend of mine, uh, Ebony Elizabeth Thomas, is you can just diversify your course. Like, it doesn't have to be multicultural children's literature to teach the class that way. The first time I taught multicultural children's literature, I contacted her and some other friends to say, hey, you know, um, I'm teaching this for the first time. I know you teach this. Do you have any advice or tips or, or text you think I should assign? And she said, well, you know, I just, I teach my literature for children class at you know, the college level as a multicultural children's literature class. And just a light bulb went off over my head when she said that. Because, of course, my Literature for Children class had diverse voices, and it, it always has. But I didn't think of turning up the intensity on that. You know, I didn't think of explicitly foregrounding that until she told me. I felt some kind of, I guess, like unconscious loyalty to literary canons and that everyone must read Alice in Wonderland or something, um, which I think everyone must read, but, <laughs> but not necessarily in the Introduction to Literature for Children. You should maybe know about it. But there's so many other books that you can read. And so I think part of this is like decolonizing your own imagination, you know, um, uh, recognizing your own assumptions about what is and isn't important. And uh, yeah, so grateful to Ebony for that, for that insight. And, and that's what I do now. You know, I teach that class as really a, a version of a multicultural children's literature class. I also teach multicultural children's literature where all of the books are by uh, minoritized authors. But my main children's literature class is mostly mostly books by uh by non-white writers so so yes many things we can do is there any particular author you have in mind who is actively doing these things for example uh, there are, for example authors who previously wrote books which were racist and they didn't know because it was a product of the time they tried to write a foreword uh, to the book saying that i lived in a time where these these stereotypes were common 
But but is there any author you have in mind particularly that is trying to diversify these books? Well, I mean, all of the. I mean, I guess there's two answers. I mean, one is that literally all the writers um, of minoritized backgrounds, whether it's Danielle Clayton or Zeta Elliott or Melinda Lowe or Christopher Myers or Lisa Yee or Sherry Dimeline or Dan Santat or Midlay or Meg Medina or Daniel Jose Older. I mean, all, all of the people who are writing stories, um, some of them fantasy stories, some of them realistic stories, um, some of them poetry, some of them historical fiction, but, you know, drawing upon some of their lived experience, uh, sort of own voices books, if you will, books about diverse characters who reflect that diverse background. So, I mean, all, all literally all of those people. Um, but then if, if you're thinking about white authors, you know, people with uh, who historically have had much more power and, and still do have much more power in the publishing industry, I think I'd single out Rick Reardon, um, who's probably best known uh, as the author of the Percy Jackson series. But he has a whole Rick Reardon Presents imprint where he features authors writing stories inspired by the mythologies and folklore of their cultures. So uh, Kwame Mbalia's Tristan Strong books, J.C. Cervantes' Stormrunner trilogy, Roshani Choshki's Pandava series. Um, so basically what his Percy Jackson books do for Greek and Roman myths, these books do for you know, African and African-American folklore, modern mythology, Hindu stories, and there are many others beside these. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I guess I would single him out as, as, as a white person who is using his power uh, to elevate the voices of those who have not been heard. Um, but yeah, and then literally, literally all, all of the people, all of the people uh, who have been, you know, fighting for their place at the table uh, for, for all these years uh, and who are writing these stories uh, based on their own experience, all of them, so... That's a long list, and I only, I only offered a just the tiniest sliver of that. So, Doctor Philip Nell, thank you very much for uh, sharing your thoughts with us on New Books Network. Uh, no, no, thanks for having me. I hope my answers weren't uh, too long, but if they were, not at all. <laughs> may, may, maybe you can edit that in post, as they say. <laughs> not at all. <laughs> thank okay. you. Okay. Well, well, thanks for having me, and uh, yeah, have a good day. <laughs>